today's Eurochat, uh, we are honored to have a very distinguished guest, the Canadian ambassador to the EU, Eilish Campbell. Eilish has a very distinguished academic career. She has degrees from Oxford University, uh, from the London School of Economics, a diploma on global leadership from Harvard. Her career in the Canadian public service has been stellar. So, Eilish Campbell is the best placed person to talk about relations between the EU and Canada, and everybody knows how important those relations are. Canada is probably one of our, definitely one of our closest partners uh, in the world. So, hello, Eilish. I'm very pleased to see you today and uh, to have a talk about relations. And I would like to start with the assessment of uh, relations between Canada and uh, the EU, maybe say a word about the latest summit. But if you could, in this context, also maybe uh, say something about whether two very important events in 2016 have changed something in our relationship, in our mutual relationship, I mean, of course, Brexit and uh, the arrival of Mr. Trump at the time, the United States key partner for Canada and for the EU, and of course Britain leaving the EU is of course a major geopolitical event. So what is your take? Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me, Jim. And of course, only the easy questions with you. Uh, so let me try and unpack some of what you asked. I mean, first of all, the Canada-EU relationship. Uh, it's deep and it's longstanding. Mm -hmm. uh, we've been uh, partners uh, with Europe uh, before the European coal and steel community. I like to say we're very early investors in the fundamental condition uh, of European solidarity, and that is peace. So we've been here for a very long time. Uh, of course, Canada's indigenous peoples uh, are fundamental uh, to our outlook, uh, to, to our health. Um, truth and reconciliation is a big part of what we're working on back home. And I say that because yes. history began a lot longer, uh, you know, thousands of years before Europeans arrived. Since they arrived, uh, I can also say that Canada is Europe. I mean, we have diasporas from every single one of the EU 20 mm. member states, 27 member states. So what that means is we have just an incredibly deep people-to-people -people relationship. And of course, now we have our strategic partnership agreement. We have our trade agreement. We'll talk, I, I hope we'll talk more about that sure. during our, yes. our conversation. But I think uh, this year in particular, we've seen the importance of relationships uh, in a way that I, I certainly couldn't have anticipated. Uh, Prime Minister Trudeau uh, has had a very close relationship with President uh, Charles Michel, for example, when he was uh, the head of state here in Belgium. Uh, and that's now translated, I think, to an incredible relationship with two presidents. I say that because I hosted the Prime Minister. I was fortunate enough to have him do his, his first visit in, in uh, I think, almost 18 months. He had not left Canada, was to the G7 summit, the NATO summit, and our Canada-EU summit. So I think that speaks volumes about the relationship. Um, you kind of asked about the operating environment of geopolitics, right? Yes, and yes. Um, knowing as Canada does the United States better than anyone else, I think, right. than any other partner, uh, we know about the importance of community, state level, and then federal relationships. Right. So what I can tell you is that when President Trump came into office, uh, not only did we know that we had to create a new relationship with Washington, uh, which we did. We renegotiated NAFTA, our North American Free Trade Agreement, mm. um, including a host of, of new environmental and labor measures that we were quite insistent be in that updated agreement. Uh, but it was really a time where we relied on our relationships, our strong relationships yeah. 
with governors, with mayors, with business, uh, and also at the cultural you know, and communications level. Yeah. Again, a very deep relationship. That, if you can manage it, provides great lessons, I think, for how mm. to manage this unique entity that is the European Union. Uh, the challenge, I would say, in the operating, in operating environment with Brexit yeah. is that, uh, of course, from a transatlantic perspective, a lot of trade, foreign direct investment, um, for example, uh, also headquarters mm. that served the EU as a whole for Canadian companies, for example, were in yeah. England, were in the yeah. United Kingdom. And uh, it's required a fresh take, right, from everyone on supply chains, right. on how they see the relationship, the interoperability between the UK and the EU. That's, a, that's someone else's podcast, not yes. mine. No, no, we're uh, not going to talk about that. <laughs> but I think what that's meant is we really uh, had to relook at the relationship. And, and again, I'm, I'm really happy to say that relationships that we've always had, of course, we are, we are Francophone. Nous sommes aussi tellement Francophone au Canada. We rehabilitated, uh, I think, you know, a very, very, we've always had a deep relationship uh, with France. Um, and it's meant that we've had to, I think, not, you know, tr when I say try harder, we've had to really deepen those ties, for example, with Eastern new member states, yes, yes. Um, things that have always been there. Mm -hmm. But I think you can, you know, you can sort of fall back on traditional patterns. We've had to really innovate yeah. in order to develop new ways of dealing with, uh, for example, uh, the member states to make sure we're on top of um, the latest in the relationship. I, I think it's actually been challenging but it's been um, it's been something that we've been able to, I think, pivot to quite quite if, effectively, really. If I may, what was also challenging, of course, is that you arrived here in the midst of a lockdown, which is relatively <laughs> unusual for an ambassador who's supposed to go and see people and meet people. Uh, this must have been a bit difficult. And uh, what kind of perspective did you get from this? I mean, what was it like to be the new Canadian ambassador coming? into Europe in the midst of a pandemic, and we are going to talk more in detail about the pandemic uh, in a few minutes. What, what was it like? I mean, how did you manage to function? Yeah, yeah. I'm only laughing, Jim, because it, you know, the context, we have to cast our minds back a year ago. I mean, the, the Prime Minister asked me last summer uh, uh, to be appointed to this position, and there were no vaccines, Belgium was in the middle of the third wave. Yes. Uh, I was moving my husband and our two children uh, <laughs> overseas. And uh, all I can say is, you know, he's up for an adventure. My, thank goodness I have a, an incredibly supportive partner. Um, I have to say, you know, the, the children were also up for the adventure. But, you know, wow, we uh, are grateful, first of all, that, you know, I have to say Belgium as our host country has been absolutely fantastic. And the strengths of, of Belgium mm. and in the healthcare situation. I mean, I, I say this, Jim, because I'm very sensitive that I'm one of uh, a giant team of ambassadors and Global Affairs Canada around the world. And I yeah. have colleagues who I was working with before I left Canada, yeah. who were at the forefront, first uh, in China with the outbreak in Wuhan, mm -hmm. the repatriation mm -hmm. yes. of hundreds, thousands of Canadians from around the world who wanted mm -hmm. to get back home. And so, you know, I, I could tell you it was challenging and it was, and I could let you in on my secret recipe, which uh, frankly was the fact that I was able to operate the best restaurant in Brussels. I think perhaps myself and the Japanese ambassador might have uh, a little run for our money here, but right. uh, in all seriousness, we still were able to operate as a diplomatic mission. And so I was able to host people. Restaurants were all closed. I could invite people for lunch. I had more one-on-one -on -one lunches yes, uh, yes. at my mission. 
Um, and in that way, I was literally building day by day, one-on-one -on -one key relationships. So right. it wasn't easy, but as I say, I'm very sensitive to the fact that mm. we've got to look out in the global yeah. picture. Um, and in that sense, you know, it was a risk, but it was obviously one worth taking. I can testify to what you <laughs> said about your cuisine because I benefited from it, of course. <laughs> and it is at one of those lunches where we had the idea to do this talk. So uh, I think this was uh, uh, money well invested, good, if I may good. say so. Uh, before we turn, I want to go a bit more into the question of COVID, but before that, uh, when talking about the overall relations, um, I'd like you to tell me what you think about how CETA, the, this great agreement we've yeah. done together, uh, how do you evaluate this now? Uh, you know that in Europe there has been a, a very difficult debate about ratification, yeah. uh, and so a lot of people sort of were questioning what was going on and all of that. What is your assessment today after a few years after the entry into force, the provisional one of the agreement? Yes, I mean, you're, you're talking about one of my favorite topics, right? Which is uh, just trade ties, relationships, people making things together, uh, which for example, in the case of vaccines, uh, Canada provides uh, intellectual property and research and inputs, one of like more than 200 inputs uh, into various mRNA and, and, and yeah. other formulations of vaccines. So I'm, I'm just totally passionate about this. The Canada-European uh, Union Comprehensive Economic and Trade Agreement, I mean, it's a partnership. Um, and I would say that we were really fortunate to have it in place yeah. during the pandemic. It was stress tested. Uh, but whether it was PPE, uh, and that was you know Canadian foreign direct investment, for example, in France that provided that, uh, or food, um, we saw a, a very low uh, diminution, you know, on our side, only a 4%, 3-4% decrease during the pandemic of our goods trade. Yeah. And I think a big part of that is because we had invested in creating these mm -hmm. strong, stable, trusted supply chains. Right. Um, I think it's important, and, and you highlighted it, it's provisionally in force, uh, and there are 15 member states who have ratified, 12 yeah. who have not. Uh, it's a deep area of engagement uh, for the commission and the member states to work on what will resonate in those member states to show that it's working. But in the meantime, what I can tell you is mm -hmm. it's a 63 billion euro two-way relationship. Mm -hmm. um, we've also got to make sure that it's uh, what we call inclusive, uh, that it's businesses of all sizes. SMEs can use mm -hmm. this agreement. And I'm really, I'm really thrilled to tell you that we're seeing more SMEs mm -hmm. access the agreement, use the preferential uh, tariffs that are in there, but also more than that, we're working on a whole host of regulatory, sustainable right. development. Yes. And, and again, I would just say, you know, business development aspects um, yeah. of this relationship. I don't talk about free trade, okay? The, no. the life is too complicated. I, wouldn't it be, you know, it could be easy if it was just, you know, free. That's not what it is. It's a partnership. Um, it means we adhere to EU regulatory standards. It means we have yeah. GDPR adequacy Yes. that allows us to access mm -hmm. and safeguard data yeah. and information. So there's just so much that goes into this agreement. But uh, what I would say is uh, we've got to show that it works for people uh, and mm -hmm. we've got to show that it works for all you know, various sectors mm -hmm. and that it's a living agreement. So right. yeah. adapting it to, for example, we saw out of COP26, the recent climate change uh, and Paris Agreement talks, we saw yes. uh, new commitments, for example, on methane, we saw new commitments on bio, we we're going to see it then COP15 mm -hmm. on biodiversity, uh, new commitments uh, around protecting the environment. 
uh, and we saw additional uh, work, for example, on deforestation. Uh, labor and human rights are also, of course, uh, part of the context yeah. here. Yeah. So this is yeah. a living agreement, and we're going to keep making sure that it right. um, adapts to the latest, uh, I think, uh, improvements, if you will, in not only trade rules, but also what consumers and society expect yeah. from two advanced mm -hmm. socially developed partners like Canada and Europe. I, I Does think that make sense? Yes, it makes a lot of sense, uh, because you touched on the very points which were controversial in Europe, because in Europe there is a bit the feel that trade is sort of too liberal, that you mm. don't care about society, you don't care about right. regulation, you don't care about uh, environmental standards and things like that. And so I think uh, the point you made precisely about the importance of this in this agreement, I think is absolutely uh, mm -hmm. fundamental, if I may say so. But let us turn to the pandemic now. First, uh, uh, we have our various experiences and they are all difficult for everybody in the whole world. From the Canadian point of view, how did you handle this? What were the most uh, striking mm. challenges you had to face? both nationally, but also in relationship with foreign powers and partners. Yes, I mean, it, can, you, can, can we cast our minds back and remember uh, Canada had suffered from this um, uh, outbreak of SARS, this acute respiratory syndrome. Yes. So we had experience from SARS, and I remember, I distinctly remember, you know, the hypothesis that we were going to be able to do contact tracing and control the entry of COVID, yes. right, in, into our countries. Because when we first learned about this disease, you know, we, we thought it was sort of happening elsewhere. And what we quickly realized <clears throat> is that COVID is just so, such a virulent uh, disease. Uh, and uh, as a result, we went into our lockdown uh, in, I, I want to say it was you know, March or, or April. I was having to work at home with our two school-aged children. Uh, let's just say the pivot to digital schooling took some time, yes. I think both in Europe but also in Canada. Um, and what it meant was we were just in constant learning and adaption mode. Um, Canadians have a high degree of trust in institutions. Uh, we can't take that for granted. And I think over the pandemic, we've been stress tested uh, just as every member state, just as the EU has. Uh, but we were guided, uh, uh, the Prime Minister made it very clear from the very beginning that uh, science, getting the best advice from our uh, then vaccine task force, for example, from mm. our public health doctor, Dr. Tam, was incredibly important. Yes. Um, and so I'll say our challenges have been, you know, just as great as any other nations. But we've, um, I think we've we've benefited from some really strong social health uh, institutions. What was unprecedented about mm. this, though, was the closure of the Canada-U.S. border, which has never occurred. Like if someone had told me the border's going to be closed and it's going to be closed to, and I mean, you have to understand there's, you know, basically $2 billion worth of trade that goes across that border every day. There's hundreds of thousands of people. Right. We have nurses, thousands of nurses and doctors that live in Canada, drive to the States for work. I mean, it sounds, I mean, for Europeans and the Schengen uh, exactly. uh, area, it sounds very similar, right? But when you have two sovereign nations and then there's a decision to close the border, I mean, that, that was just an unprecedented situation. And, yeah. uh, you know, we've had to be incredibly adaptable. I'm, I'm happy to tell you it's now open, both the land border yes, uh, and the air border. Canada is a green country uh, as far as the EU and, and most of its member states are concerned. But, mm. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's been a heck of a year. 
and a half. Yeah. What can I tell you? I think, I mean, it has been a, a real challenge for everybody. And of course, for the EU, which is a relatively complicated animal, as you've probably discovered since <laughs> you arrived here, uh, it's even more challenging in many ways because we have all those various layers of competences and all that. Yeah. Uh, at the time when you arrived, I think there was a lot of criticism against the institutions, uh, mm, against the way right. the system functioned, the fact that national uh, authorities had to take certain decisions and all of that. Uh, there was the question about the procurement of vaccines, which at the time yes. was still quite criticized. Uh, from your perspective, coming up in from the outside, I mean, uh, what did you learn about the EU from this, from what you saw? Yeah, I think um, what it, you know, again, I, we have to go, we have to try and remember this, this moment in time. And I actually, I asked our incredible team uh, at, at the mission to, 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 we went back together and did a kind of summary of what happened when, right? right. Um, Canada had procured seven, eight different vaccines and we didn't know what was going to work. Um, so we had a vaccine task force that provided, I think, you know, really deep, uh, both uh, scientific, public health, and also supply chain advice. Mm -hmm. So we, we had purchased a portfolio of vaccines. We had also, uh, Jim, I think like the EU, um, done advanced purchase agreements, but where we had gone a step further mm. um, is knowing that there were some concerns around supply uh, from, from different countries. We had made it quite clear we were quite interested in options on vaccines coming from the, from the EU and also from Switzerland. Mm. So we had also geographically diversified uh, our purchases. And uh, that strategy, I have to say, uh, it worked well. But when a, when a prime minister sends you abroad, one of the things, you know, it's like, I'm sending you abroad, you've got your instructions, good luck and remember, no surprises, yeah. <laughs> okay? Uh, I have to tell you that period was full of surprises. Um, it was full of mistrust, it was full mm. of um, you know, real questions around who was going to get how much vaccines when. And the companies involved, of course, couldn't guarantee production. They, they had made promises, but there were production problems. And we were all in this uh, together. So uh, what I learned is, uh, again, those relationships mattered. Uh, there was a lot of times where the politics were running further ahead of the institutions themselves. And so what that meant is that being here in Brussels, yeah. it was also invaluable to have, uh, we have an incredible team of ambassadors across the EU, 27 member states. And so being able to work together as a team, getting information, intelligence uh, on the ground. Uh, you know, I had fantastic information also too from the actual production uh, facilities that was coming in because we had signed contracts. Uh, so we had, the, the companies were also at this point our partners. Um, but you know, perhaps if, if it's interesting to you, we can talk a little bit more about uh, how the EU institutions themselves were actually acting at this time. But at a high level, I have to tell you, my number one message yes. is thank you. Thank you to the EU, which was always exporting. And at the end sure. of the day, the macro number is 50% of production yes. in the EU Correct. was exported. Yes. So you know, if this is open strategic autonomy, mm -hmm. Uh, I think you passed the first test with flying colors, and we really appreciate it. No, that is, uh, I think you're absolutely right on this, and it, it, as always in the European system, it takes a long time for the Europeans to um, give credit to the EU for doing That's things. Right. Uh, and it took a long time to explain exactly what you've done in a few sentences now. 
This being said, let me come back and probe you a bit more on yeah. uh, uh, your view you of the institutions. Because uh, uh, for someone coming from Canada, of yeah. course Canadians know us well, but still coming to Brussels as the ambassador and being confronted with the Commission, with the European Parliament, with the Council of Ministers, the European Council, and of course the member countries, you alluded to those before, it must be baffling, particularly at a time of crisis where you do not know exactly who is responsible for what. I mean, how did you look at this? It's the difference between, shall we say, the theory of the EU and the practice of right. the EU. So, you know, in theory, you've got, you know, DG Santé and DG Trade working in a very reasonable fashion to produce uh, recommendations that are going through your famous comatology process. Um, and it's actually uh, a committee that I've, you know, perhaps learned more about than I might have wished, the, the safeguard <laughs> committee yes. uh, that was in charge of the regulation. So doesn't that all just sound so straightforward? Well, the reality was that capitals, right, the EU member states, the leaders themselves mm. were under such pressure exactly. uh, from the European public, from citizens, quite rightly, asking, you know, where are the vaccines coming from? Where are they coming from? And so uh, there was also, I have to say, um, the other piece of context that I think is really important, and I think this is going to be important for institutional memory, um, is that there were really important commercial relationships that had already been, you know, settled uh, by investors in the EU. Uh, I'm thinking uh, of here, for example, of the partnership between BioNTech and Pfizer, uh, but also the supply chain uh, for Moderna, which originates in Switzerland yes. and then comes to Spain. So even things that might seem straightforward to the EU, like, you know, it's all made here, yes. that's not the case. Mm. Testing happens in the US, inputs are coming from the UK, inputs are coming from Canada uh, and elsewhere. Um, and so nothing's as kind of straightforward as you might think. And it was those member states, uh, I have to say, that were also uh, hosting or, you know, that mm. are the, the location of those mm. uh, manufacturing facilities. So Spain and Belgium in particular were working with us very carefully because they were also trying to figure out how the regulations that were being promulgated were going to work. So what can I tell you? It's multi-factored uh, analysis. Right. Um, and, and I don't want to simplify it, but I will say this, that calls from Prime Minister Trudeau to President von der Leyen to President Michel Minister Mary Ng, our trade minister, our international trade minister, speaking with Executive mm -hmm. Vice President uh, and Commissioner for Trade Dombrovskis. Yes. The relationship between our two health, your commissioner and our, our minister, mm -hmm. those relationships were very important because mm -hmm. we were given assurances at the highest level uh, that we would have uh, our vaccines delivered, and yes. they were. Mm -hmm. But there were some heart-stopping uh, moments while even the internal machinery Yes. was trying to figure itself out. Yes. And now, I, you know, maybe I can end it here and we'll, we'll see if that satisfies you, Jim, but I would say I'm really encouraging the EU member states and the institutions to look at the imperative of transparency, right? Knowing the supply chains, where the production was happening. Uh, I commend, for example, Commissioner Thierry Breton when he sort of said, you know, I'm gonna go out there and start visiting production facilities exactly. and start highlighting what's working and where we can expand production. I thought that was an incredibly important turning point yes. because you'll recall the conversation had been a lot about AstraZeneca to that point. And I said, this is great that they're focusing now on expanding the capacity that's here, which, which is incredible, right? I mean, again, yes. the EU should be thrilled to be the home of these R&D and production powerhouses. <laughs> um, so that was a real turning point. Uh, and I would just say, 
that transparency and production piece is so important and, and focusing on the export authorization piece, which hopefully will now come to an end at the end of December. Mm. You know, separating out, I'll call it the trust building yeah. from the unnecessary, um, you know, sort of Damocles that can hang over you if, mm. you're, if you're waiting to see whether you're going to get an approval or not. Yeah. Doing away with that piece, I think, and moving on to a more normal uh, transparency set of exercises that builds mm. confidence. That's, I think, uh, we're at another key moment. Yes, I, I think, I mean, confidence is absolutely key for the union to function. Right. And you're right to talk about transparency because I think it's the best reply in many ways to criticism against the EU. It's actually to say how things are working, how they're supposed to work, uh, why they are sometimes a bit complicated. But there is one mm -hmm. particular point still on the vaccines I, I yep. wanted to, to question, to ask you about. Uh, this is our responsibility as rich countries. You are rich, the EU is rich. Vis-a-vis uh, -vis third countries, it's the whole question of getting vaccines to Africa and to other uh, uh, parts of the world who have trouble getting vaccines. Are you satisfied with the way uh, Canada and mm. the EU have handled this? Are we doing enough for those countries? Yeah, I, I think it would be great if we could do what we are doing even faster, Jim. Mm. I mean, there's just no question that there's vaccine inequality, and there needs to be a more equitable distribution of access, particularly for doctors and nurses and the elderly that we now know, you know, 20 months into this pandemic are the most vulnerable to the worst types of COVID. Um, and I think what's imperative to underscore here is that both the EU and Canada are multilateralists, committed multilateralists, right? And I mean, it's one thing to say it. And again, I come back to the pandemic proves whether your actions match your rhetoric. And so the creation of COVAX, the yeah. ACT Accelerator, I, I think President von der Leyen has been particularly passionate and truly active in this issue, ensuring that medicines, and in this case it's COVID, are getting to the most vulnerable countries. Mm -hmm. um, the fact that millions of vaccines have made their way yeah. uh, to vulnerable countries uh, is incredibly important, I think, our work uh, to expand production in Africa, for example, is important. Right. We're, of course, I and mean, we spend a lot of time talking about, of course, the EU uh, and its um, partners, but you know, for Canada, it's also the Caribbean and Latin and South America, which also don't have uh, production that we've also been focused on. And so together, uh, the fact that we've committed billions of dollars uh, and most importantly, assigned production. We've just recently assigned uh, additional doses of Moderna to COVAX. Um, I think that's a real sign of our committed okay. partnership, but uh, so much more to do, particularly yeah. um, as it relates to the World Trade Organization, work uh, on the intellectual property piece of this, mm -hmm. making sure that we're prepared because it's inevitable for the next pandemic. Um, but I think that from the very beginning, the fact that we've been uh, working together at the World Health Organization. Right. Uh, that's, that's, that's just another sign of the global elements of this partnership. Okay, thanks very much. Since you mentioned multilateralism and global challenges, uh, yeah. let me just come to Glasgow and uh, COP26, which is just finished. Uh, this was one of the themes of the recent uh, summit between Canada yes. and the EU. It's, of course, an absolutely vital issue for Canada, for the EU and for the whole world. What is your take on Glasgow and uh, how 
do you think Canada, together with the EU, can move things forward in this absolutely key area? Yeah, I mean, I think the fact that we're taking concrete commitments uh, to reduce global warming, uh, it's, it's the most key issue of our time. It's going to essentially determine the, the planet that we leave our children and grandchildren. We got more specific at, at COP26, which I'm really pleased about, which includes um, commitments not only for ending coal, but also reductions of methane. Uh, we have uh, an increased um, commitment uh, around climate adaptation and, and development financing, uh, for financing for developing countries to uh, not only adapt but address climate change. That was, I, I think, integral. The other aspect to this is that we're seeing businesses really step up, um, and uh, that's both the financial and insurance industries that have to start pricing pollution uh, and climate adaptation into their financial models mm -hmm. and how they're allocating capital, uh, but it's also how we're doing business. And so uh, I wrap all of that um, in together because uh, we're going to keep working together, not just at COP, and, and maybe I could just take a moment to share on carbon pricing, because yeah. there's a lot of talk about the carbon border adjustment measure here in the EU. We've, we've already said um, mm -hmm. in our last federal budget that we will work with the European Union mm -hmm, mm -hmm. on models for the carbon border adjustment measure. Uh, we had a fantastic carbon pricing event that the Prime Minister hosted at COP26 mm -hmm. yeah. um, with international leaders, uh, including President von der Leyen, on creating a global minimum standard for carbon yeah. pricing. Yeah. So it's our yeah. expectation that our carbon price, we have a carbon price that's applied um, mm -hmm. on more than 80% of our economic activity already, Mm -hmm. uh, your um, ETS and carbon uh, pricing system uh, applies to, I think, about 45, 50% uh, of your GDP. We are really looking to work together on creating international standards. You're going to see us walk okay. all the way down the road with you um, mm -hmm. on this one. The recognition of our carbon pricing, you know, as, mm -hmm. as part of your regime, uh, because as I say, it's, it's clear to me that Europe is, yeah. is totally committed on this issue. Absolutely. And so our interest is then working at a technical level. It's working you know, at, a, at a commercial level to, to underscore how we can integrate this into businesses. It's on clean technologies. You know, it's just so multifaceted. Environment is going to be mainstreamed into every single decision that we take. Uh, and so you know, you st we started the COP26. I mean, it was necessary. Uh, we want to see even greater commitments right. from all partners. That's mm -hmm. in, that includes mm -hmm. the United States, that includes China and India. What are the we can't do this. We can't do this alone. Elish, what are the yeah. commitments for Canada for 2030? I mean, you, we had this debate in Europe about minus 55 and all that. Do you also have a, a, a the same kind of objective at this time horizon? Yeah, a, a 40 to 45 percent decrease, but also net zero by 2050. Okay. And yeah. so mm -hmm. we're on that road. Uh, as I say, in every sector uh, okay. of our economic activity. Do you have a lot of pushback? Because, I mean, hydrocarbons yeah. are very important in Canada. Uh, you know, we have a, uh, proposals on the table about burden sharing. It will be very complicated yes. in the EU. The EU has a lot of ambition, has always had a lot of ambition in terms of uh, fighting climate change, but it's a huge challenge for us. And the debate about fit for 55 will be very difficult. I suppose in Canada it's also a difficult debate. Everything is challenging when it's at a point of transition, but Canadians, uh, mm. you know, I think you've seen uh, a clear response uh, on the importance of the environment. Uh, it's, it's one of the top issues for Canadians 
climate change. And, and I say that because we have an incredibly strong, socially responsible, environmentally responsible oil and gas sector. Mm -hmm. I think what most Europeans probably don't realize is that you know, over 85% of our energy grid already is clean. Mm -hmm. We have hydroelectricity, we have nuclear, uh, LNG, mm -hmm. uh, we have a multitude of, of energy sources and we are, we are off of coal, we are powering past coal. So mm -hmm. that's a commitment we've already made, retiring coal, it's done. And so mm -hmm. the question then is, as an oil and gas producer, yes. how do we be responsible? And I said net zero, right? And I said net zero for a reason, because we will continue to be one of the most environmentally and socially responsible producers of oil and gas on the planet. And how we do that is incredibly important. And it includes, of course, I, you know, I, I, we could talk about the specific elements, but you know, collaboration between Europe and Canada, particularly on carbon capture and storage, um, on uh, the technologies that reduce harmful emissions, uh, but also uh, how we work together on um, the other energy sources that over time we know are going to be absolutely essential to the transition. I hear from member states, you know, there's, a, there's just such a huge variety of the energy mix in each member state. And right. so that the complexity that you're dealing with is a little bit, a little bit like our provinces, yeah. but, but we've, I think, traveled further and faster down that road, mm -hmm. you know, of, on our domestic grid. Uh, so then the question becomes all the other elements that we are undertaking in order to meet those climate uh, objectives that are that are imperative. Edish, I, I would love to continue for yeah. hours. I think uh, you have already told us a lot. Um, you have a, a total command of the uh, major files. I think this is very important for us to have such an interlocutor in Brussels. But unfortunately, uh, <laughs> we are coming to the close of this talk. I really wanted to thank you very warmly. I think this has been fascinating. Uh, maybe in two or three words, if I ask you, what kind of key messages mm. would you have to European leaders and to European citizens more generally? Yeah, it's that we're trusted partners. And there's just so much more that we can do together, and we will. Excellent. Thank you very much. This ends the uh, talk with Edish Kemper uh, about relations between Canada and the EU. We will have uh, the next Europe chat, which will be devoted to a very important theme in Europe, which is solidarity, on the basis of a book which has recently been uh, published uh, within the TEPSA network. So I hope you'll tune in for that one as well. Thank you very much. podcast is co-funded by the Europe for Citizens programme of the European Union. The European Commission's support for the production of this podcast does not constitute an endorsement of the contents which reflects the views only of the authors and the Commission cannot be held responsible for any use which may be made of the information contained therein.